Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello there. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's roundtable where we take time out before heading into the weekend to look back on the big stories of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. A lot to talk about this week, including, well, in an all-night session, we expect that the Senate last night to finally finish debate on the big partisan, bipartisan infrastructure bill and maybe even vote on it. Uh, But senators decided to go home to bed instead. President Biden did sign a bill yesterday awarding a gold medal to Capitol Police and other law enforcement officers who protected members of the House and Senate on January 6th, a bill which 21 conservative Republicans voted against in the House. The president also extended a moratorium on COVID-related evictions, even though the Supreme Court says it's probably unconstitutional. And New York Governor Andrew Cuomo faces a Niagara of demands, mainly from mainly uh, from fellow Democrats, to resign or be impeached. So much for this week's panel to chew on. So let's say hello to Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor of NBC News Digital. Hi, Ginger. Hello, Bill. Glad to be here. And to Addie Baird, politics reporter for BuzzFeed News. Hello, Addie. Hi, Bill. Okay. John Bennett, back with us, contributing editor for CQ Roll Call. Hello, John. Hello, Bill. Happy Friday. Thank you. So let's start with the uh, dog that didn't bite, (laughs) Uh, Ginger. We were all lined up. They were going to vote, consider these amendments and get to a vote. It was going to be a glorious day for bipartisanship, Uh, glorious night, I should say. What happened? It was going to save my weekend, um, and it didn't happen. (laughs) You know, we all thought we saw Rand Paul say he wouldn't object to them moving quickly, and normally that's the last holdout. Um, And when Rand Paul says we can do it quickly, reporters rejoice that things are going to happen fast. And instead, Senator Haggerty, the junior senator from Tennessee, was the holdup. He was displeased with a CBO score that came out on Thursday afternoon that said that the the package of infrastructure measures is going to add $256 billion to the deficit. There had been lots of effort to make this this appear to be paid for. The CBO wasn't buying it, and so he wasn't buying it either. And as a result, instead of getting it all done on Thursday night and heading out of town to Senator Enzi's funeral, they're going to go to the funeral, they're going to come back, uh, and they're going to vote on Saturday, presumably. Now, he can't stop it forever, so Saturday looks like it's actually going to happen. Um, And then he could delay it more they could be done completely on saturday we'll have to wait and see what what kind of deals they're able to strike and does it look like they have the votes 
It does look like they have the votes. Um, there was a, a pretty good cushion, a uh, pretty good size of Republicans who, who supported getting onto the bill, sort of all these procedural votes that we've been having. Um, and we, we're pretty sure there's going to be enough to get to get off. Now, uh, McConnell is one to watch, um, and, and he seems to have been getting what he wanted, which was a lot of amendment votes. And so uh, it looks like they're going to have what they need to get this done. Okay. All right. Well, let, let's move on to the big block, blockbuster news of the week. Uh, Addie Baird, here is Attorney General Tish James making her announcement. They completed their five-month investigation, and here's what she found out about Governor Andrew Cuomo. The Independence investigation found that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, many of whom were young women, by engaging in unwanted groping, kisses, hugging, and by making inappropriate comments. Further, the governor and his senior team took actions to retaliate against at least one former employee for coming forward with her story. So, Addie Baird, how long can Governor Cuomo last? I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, this is these are very serious accusations. Um, Andrew Cuomo has really reigned over the state of New York for uh, about a decade, um, and he was, I would say, until very recently, very likely to get yet another term. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. However, uh, this has certainly turned the tide. I don't think that Cuomo is going to resign. I, I covered New York state and local politics for a long time. And, and one of the things that, well, not a long time, for some time, I'm, I'm still young. But, um, but we've talked a lot about how um, this report really confirms that Andrew Cuomo is who everyone thought that Andrew Cuomo was. But now it's out in the public. Um, I think he's going to dig his heels in. He won't resign. But it certainly looks like the legislature, the state legislature, is moving toward impeaching him. And that process can actually happen pretty quickly in the state of New York. Um, the estimates I have heard have been sometime around late September, early October, when that would really be, mm -hmm. uh, you know, moving. Um, and I don't think that he can survive that. Um, so I think he's got, you know, a month and a half left yeah. as, the, as the governor of New York State. But, John, uh, the phrase that I've heard used is Trump it out. <laughs> and it looks like that Cuomo yeah. may try to Trump it out, which means, you know, deny, counterattack, and just hope people forget about it. Right. You left out deny and deflect, which, yeah. is, uh, which is Trump 101. Uh, that's exactly what uh, the governor is, is trying to do. Um, unfortunately, politicians, uh, while they may not agree on policy, um, we see this too often that uh, somebody like a Donald Trump and an Andrew Cuomo who don't agree on policy, but they seem to have a lot of similar uh, personality characteristics. And, um, you know, it's just uh, just a really um, just a really dark uh, uh, time right now that we're still dealing with Donald Trump. That was six years of my life, and and now we've got something similar with Governor Cuomo. And you know, I think, I think what was said earlier is right. He's not going to resign. He's going to take this as far as he can, and it looks like that will be um, a very uh, nasty and lewd impeachment mm -hmm. proceeding uh, with the New York State uh, State Legislature. 
but they will remove him. I think AP did a count. It was AP did a count of um, of lawmakers and uh, you know of the 150 total votes, they got 97 to say they supported impeaching the governor. So his days are numbered. It's just it's yeah. It's just how long does he want to to drag the state and the country through this? There was a senior uh, senior Democrat quoted on background, I believe, also in the AP yesterday. Um, and he was asked, you know, who who might be the one in the party to convince the governor to step down before the impeachment proceedings even, you know, start in earnest. And this senior official said that, you know, he's known the governor for 30, 40 years, but no one's talking to the governor right now. So there's no one really in his ear except his closest aides who we'll see if, if they start jumping ship. But, you know, there's no one even talking to him right now to, to try to force him out. So it looks like this may go on uh, for a while. Uh, Ginger, one thing that I thought was uh, no, so uh, John mentioned uh, similarities in certain kinds of behavior, certainly between Donald Trump and Mario Cuomo. But the reaction, uh, I think, uh, I, I thought was noticeable for this one big difference. Uh, it was Democrat Trish James who released this report. It was Democrat Nancy Pelosi who called for uh, Cuomo to resign, as well as Democrat Chuck Schumer, as well as every Democratic member of the New York delegation, and as well as Democrat Joe Biden. A um, little difference between the way Democrats handle these accusations and Republicans do when it came to Donald Trump. Yeah, we definitely saw Democrats responding across the board. Um, there wasn't anyone coming to Cuomo's defense, right? Uh, I think John said, you know, there's no one talking to him. Um, I think it's because he's radioactive. And and even to urge him to resign, uh, we don't see anyone in the White House. Our reporting at NBC is that no one uh, from the White House has talked to Cuomo or his aides. Um, and, and I think that that's really evident of how the Democratic Party is unwilling to tolerate it. I mean, we can think back to Franken yep. um, and this sort of criticism that Democrats were too quick to, to eat their own. But I think that there's a consistency across the board for Democrats that they will not tolerate this um, and that anyone who you know, there's this credible uh, evidence that this has happened, he should be gone. Uh, I think that, that John is right. We're in for a long haul of, of Cuomo uh, for a number of reasons, his personality for Trump, um, the fact that there isn't a way to convince the guy that he needs to just give it up, um, that maybe some delusions that he can survive. Um, but I, I will say that it has been my experience with uh, things like this, that they tend to change very quickly, right? They go from, from insisting mm -hmm. there's no way they'll leave until suddenly um, at eight o'clock on a Wednesday, they're gone. And so I wouldn't be also surprised if that happens uh, uh, faster than we would think. Yeah. But you I know, just wanted go to ahead. Add, yeah, Addie, please. Yeah, I, look, I just wanted to say that I think part of this is um, how Cuomo himself reacted, which like there was, uh, I think, if the day that this report came out, Cuomo had come out and given a press, you know, availability where he was basically like, I am so sorry, I misunderstood these interactions, which like, believe him or not, like, you know, it would have, I think, gone over much better than what he chose to do, which was to put together a slideshow of him hugging and kissing people and say, look, it's actually fine. It was one of the most bizarre. I mean, I, like I'm sort of speechless. I I cannot really 
I can both really believe that Andrew Cuomo chose to do it and also like watching it unfold in real time was a little bit insane. And so I think that his reaction to this, the way he dug in, the way he said none of this is actually a problem. Um, There was no recognition of like making people deeply uncomfortable and making them feel unsafe. Um, And so I think his reaction is a big part of, of why the reaction from the party has been swift and strong. Um, yeah, it was all prepared ahead of time, right? <laughs> which, yeah. which, which showed, yeah. I thought, just cl- how clueless uh, they really were. Uh, John, a little sensitive question, but should we be uh, outraged, appalled, or surprised that um, Andrew Cuomo sought and received advice on how to deal with this from his brother, uh, who happens to be an anchor at CNN? Uh, I think we should not be shocked. Uh, nor surprised. Uh, I think it's fine to be appalled. Um, I am. I'm not one to reflectively just defend everyone in our business. Um, after you know covering the White House beat for as long as I did, um, you know the, the Trump White House, and and frankly, I, you know sometimes Jen Psaki can be condescending and snarky, and and my line in those moments. Uh, but but then we react poorly, and my line has been. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes they're terrible, but we're worse. And I think what what Chris Cuomo, what yeah, absolutely, what the governor is accused of is terrible. But in you know, in a way, what his brother did is also terrible. And he's, you know, we all we all criticize Fox News and and the right wing uh, primetime lineup that they have for you know for being a reason that you have tens of millions of people who refuse to get vaccinated and, and, and think the election was stolen. Well, we also have to be equally critical when, when another network allows something like this. And it doesn't look like Chris Cuomo is going to, going to be punished. Um, but what he did, he stepped over a line for sure. So yeah, you, I think we should all be, um, we should be upset with Chris Cuomo, but uh, you know, as often happens in these situations, it looks like like he's going to skate. If I had done that as an editor or a reporter at a publication and my brother was in trouble and um, I wasn't on primetime cable with a multi-million dollar contract, um, I'm sure I would have been out of a job, but the same rules don't apply to everyone. Yeah, got it. So let's come back to Congress now. It's a very unusual um, uh, series of events this week around the issue of uh, the moratorium on landlords being able to force um, renters out of their home if they had lost their jobs because of the pandemic and couldn't pay their rent. That moratorium was due to expire. Uh, President Biden had asked Congress to extend it. Congress left town without doing so. So Congresswoman Cori Bush from Missouri decided she was going to single-handedly make this a big issue. uh, And she planted herself on the steps of the Capitol for two or three nights in a row, camping out there. Uh, Ginger, we haven't seen anything like this before, but it worked. Well, did it it work? Did it work? (laughs) Okay. I I mean, it, it kind of worked, right? I mean, for starters, it didn't work in the way that she was elected to change law and policy, which is that she didn't file a bill 
and get it voted right. on, right? right? And we also understand that 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 some folks, uh, a part of her effort, couldn't figure out how to force a vote on the House floor, right? So like, like they they couldn't even do it, right? So to to in part the constitutional construct we have to change laws, it did not work, right? And and so okay, so. Let's say, and, and to be frank, we also understand that, that the, the votes weren't there in the Democratic House caucus to pass a bill. So she couldn't do it that way if she wanted to, right? Um, and, and so she convinces finally the White House to issue this moratorium and declares victory. But we're sitting here at, fi- at nine, you know, 10 minutes to nine on Friday morning. And the, the filings in, in the lawsuit to challenge it are due. The response is due in 12 hours. And by tomorrow, a judge could strike it down. So it might be a very, very short-lived victory because it wasn't done the way that the courts told them to do it already. Um, and that our system is designed to. So it is a symbolic victory, I suppose. It it looks like a victory. Lots of people declared victory, but it's not going to be a very long victory. We can we can be fairly certain. Yeah. Uh, so, Addie, this was a member of Congress who was a big activist before for the homeless, right? She becomes a member of Congress. And normally, as Ginger just indicated, I know uh, Speaker Pelosi always tells these new members, okay, you were an activist then, but now you're a member of Congress. You have to do things differently. Cory Bush kind of defied that, and then the president defied it by saying, it may be unconstitutional, but damn it, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, is Biden taking a risk here? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I also just want to note, Cori Bush is not only an advocate for people experiencing homelessness, right. she has experienced homelessness. Good point. Um, yes. And so I think that like that is that is not a small piece of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, Pelosi tells these members when they come to Congress, like you basically need to um, embrace decorum. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about this Congress, about Cori Bush, about a lot of the progressive squad, um, is that they basically are saying like, no, we don't. We don't have to. And look, (laughs) frankly, um, I think that we can all agree objectively that Congress is not um, always the most productive institution. And in my mind, like I think it's interesting. I'm the chair of the union uh, where I work, so I feel like I can really respect organizing for organizing's sake. Um, So that's that's one piece. Second piece of this is, yeah, I think Biden is taking a risk here. Like Ginger was just saying, um, we do have a pretty clear sense that the court is going to strike this down. Um, The eviction moratorium previously was an emergency national moratorium. And now it is only targeted in places with high coronavirus transmission. Um, But the court has pretty much made clear that that's not okay with them. Um, What I find sort of interesting about this on a macro scale is that it's another example of like, uh, like, Democrats have a lot of power. They retain control of both chambers of Congress. They have the White House. Yes, they have a like a conservative Supreme Court that is essentially the issue here. But the fact that it came to this, that it came to Biden, the president of the United States, saying, well, I think this is illegal, but we're going to do it anyway, um, is kind of baffling to me. Like, 
I just really, and I've talked about it on this podcast a million times, Democrats seem to be incapable of really wielding their power to get shit done. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of (laughs) insane to me to watch it unfold in real time. Yeah. And in fact, go ahead, John. If I I could just jump in, I think think, uh, Addie is 100% right. Over the years, I've always asked the question, are Democrats unable or unwilling to to use their power? And I, I totally agree. It's baffling that it, it came to that, that we had the president had, you know, he had to admit that, that his own action was probably going to be going to be struck down and struck down soon. So that's the question. What, what is it in the Democratic DNA that they just won't they just they just won't go for it? They just won't use their power. And, you know, it's it's. And voters do remember things like this, I think. Yeah. Well, that's a long conversation that we're all going to have over a, a few beers one of these one of these days. I look forward to it. <laughs> uh, but on that point, um, as a progressive, as a lefty, as an admirer of Cory Bush, um, and uh, as a Bernie bro, I think still started in 2016. Um, Democrat, I must admit, Democrats also progressives particularly have a way of stepping on their message. So uh, I just want to play this little clip. Now, Cori Bush comes out of what I think was a big victory. Uh, Ginger's right. It may be very short lived, but a big victory turning this whole issue around. And then here is the message that she says that comes out of that victory on helping people stay in their homes, she takes it to another level. Here is Congresswoman Cori Bush. I'm going to make sure I have security because I know I have had attempts on my life and I have too much work to do. There are too many people that need help right now for me to to allow that. So if I end up spending 200,000, I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police and put that money into social safety nets. Ginger, what? Defund the police? <laughs> How did she jump to that? Um, I think because she was aware that the internet was abuzz with criticism that um, her security was counter to her defund the police message. And look, like, I think if we had to sort of encapsulate politics in the modern era, it's call your opponent a hypocrite and then hope your voters like it, right? So uh, unsurprising that people would say that, even though clearly the defund the police movement and hiring private security while you sleep on the Capitol steps are not the same thing. Right. Um, but I think that you're right. This is, this is sort of the places where message consistency and what your opponent says can drive things. I mean, if you look at this eviction moratorium, Democrats spent four years criticizing Trump every time he signed an executive order for being authoritarian or doing things he knew the court was going to strike down. Remember the Muslim ban, remember building the wall. And now they're like cheering that the president just ordered a thing that they know is going to be struck down. Um, Do I think anyone's base is going to punish them for that? Absolutely not. I don't think any Democrats going to be like, well, Biden shouldn't have done that. But I also don't think that Cori Bush's voters are going to punish her for hiring security. This is all just about feeding the outrage, right? And mm-hmm. and allowing herself, in, in part, in that segment, to be driven by the criticism of the internet outrage. And I think, um, if yeah. anything, that's what that encapsulates in, in 30 seconds, is knowing what people are saying about her online or on yeah. Fox News and trying to preempt it. 
Yep, and uh, learning to ignore it uh, would be my advice. <laughs> uh, we could go on and on on that issue, but let's take a quick break here and come back and talk about some of the other uh, issues that are in the news this week with today's roundtable. We'll get into it with uh, Addie Baird from BuzzFeed News, John Bennett, CQ Roll Call, and Ginger Gibson from the NBC News Digital. And as all of you regular listeners to the Bill Press Pod know, the Bill Press Pod is supported by America's great labor unions, which is why uh, it was with great, great sadness yesterday that we learned of the sudden death of Rich Trumpka, president of the AFL-CIO. Rich was a longtime friend of mine, uh, a great political leader, great labor leader, a big supporter of progressive media, a strong fighter for working families of America from his days as a miner himself up in Pennsylvania to head of all of the nation's labor unions. Uh, I believe President Biden spoke for all of us yesterday when he talked about how Rich Trumpka will be remembered. He was an American worker, always fighting for working people, protecting their wages, their safety, their pensions, and their ability to build a middle-class life. I've also believed that the middle class built America, but I know who built the middle class, unions. Rich Trumpka, great American, God rest his soul. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back with today's podcast, today's roundtable. Addie Bear joins us from uh, BuzzFeed News, Ginger Gibson from NBC News Digital, and John Bennett, CQ a roll call President Biden at the White House yesterday, uh, signing legislation, uh, HR 335, which awards the gold Congressional Gold Medal to members of the Capitol Police Force and uh, other law enforcement officers who protected the Capitol, protected senators and representatives on January 6th. Uh, He took time to say, let's put January 6th in context. This is what it was all about. It wasn't dissent. It wasn't debate. It wasn't democracy. It was insurrection. It was riot and mayhem. It was radical and chaotic. And it was unconstitutional, maybe most important, it was fundamentally un-American. John Bennett, President Biden, didn't mention Donald Trump's name, but this was a, a direct 
uh, attack or an assault or an attempt to set the record straight with what Donald Trump and his people have been saying lately about what happened on January 6th, wasn't it? It was. It's really striking to listen to more and more Republican lawmakers and extremely disappointing. Uh, I covered Congress for a, for a long time and, um, you know, folks that that I had no problem walking up in the hall and asking a question about this or that. You know, these were serious, at least back then, these were serious legislators most of the time. And, um, you know, they could talk to you about policy. They would talk to you about the politics of whatever was going on on the Hill or whatever Donald Trump was tweeting about. And to hear some of them, you know, explain away what happened on January 6th is, it's just troubling. Um, it's, I don't, I mean, I guess they're going to pull this this infrastructure bill across the finish line sooner or later. But, you know, you just have to wonder how can, as, as Trump, as we move toward 2024, and, and I, as of right now, my gut says Trump's probably going to run, they're going to be more and more, Republicans are going to be more and more beholden. So how do you work with a party that, that denies January 6th even happened or that it was some kind of uh, tourist event that got a little bit out of hand. So, you know, I worked at a publication until recently that, that, um, there's a reason I don't work there anymore because, um, I pointed this out, do we really want to be in the business of defending the rioters? Uh, they more and more were, were choosing. Yes. Um, I just, I just don't know how you can have a party, how, how you can work with a party that is going to be so, um, you know, afraid to, to offend Trump as we get closer to 2024. Not that I expected any legislation to move getting close yeah. to the election, but it, I, it's just this existential question that, that I have in my head um, beyond, beyond infrastructure, you know, where does that party go and, 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 and Trump's role in this? Because again, they're, they're not going to want to say anything about January 6th. And I, I sure I worry about more violence. Right. Uh, and Addie, I mean, it, uh, I noticed in, in the, with a group of people there who were with the president yesterday when he signed this legislation, you would think that a bill uh, giving the Congressional Gold Medal to police officers who saved their lives would be unanimously acclaimed and supported by every single member of Congress. But 21 Republicans voted against it in the House and Leader Kevin McCarthy was not there yesterday. Senator Roy Blunt was the only Republican who attended. You would indeed think that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, what do they think? What are they thinking? I mean, they're thinking that Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party, and they fear that um, breaking from him in any way, even on yeah. something so objectively terrible as an insurrectionist attempt on uh, literally the life of the vice president, among many other members of Congress. Right. Um, Trump thinks this is OK. So for them to say it's not um, really risks them being primaried essentially, which is a really cold political calculus about uh, a really terrible terrorist attack. Um, we are still seeing um, multiple police officers who responded on January 6th have committed suicide. The fallout is still continuing. There was mm -hmm. another officer who died by suicide just this week, which is horrible. And 
Of course, the obvious thing here is that the Republican Party, we were just talking about defunding the police a couple minutes ago. The Republican Party has really dug in on supporting law enforcement, supporting the police. There were rioters, some of the the police have talked about um, in these hearings, who were literally holding thin blue line flags as they attacked the officers who responded on that day. Um, So there's just some major cognitive dissonance around this that ultimately, in my mind, comes down to um, undying, cold political support for Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I know we're jumping around, but um, uh, Ginger, I want to go back to something we talked a little bit about earlier related to that, and that is the special election this week in Ohio, particularly Ohio's 11th congressional district, two Democrats running, two African-American women, Nina Turner, supported by Bernie Sanders and AOC, and Chantel Brown, supported by uh, Congressman James Clyburn and the Congressional Black Caucus, Chantal Brown won. What's the big lesson here? Is there a big takeaway or is it just a, hey, a Democrat won a Democratic district? Well, let me start by just going back to the previous topic uh, sure, for one second. Sure. Yeah. As someone who was in the building on January 6th, I can tell uh, you yeah. that the police just were amazing. That was who came to me and told me to hide, right? So the, the, we cannot underestimate their, their role. Um, and I think that... Um, the fact that that has become political will never stop to amaze me um, because they they were there. They didn't care who if you were a Republican or a Democrat or a reporter, they were working to protect everyone um, and, and not partisan. Right. In any way. Um, yeah. And so so just to add that. To, no, to thank, what, thank you. Thank you for adding what that. Was, right. What's happening. Um, but when we look at Ohio and we look at that race, um, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing um, I, to me, the real encapsulation, I spent so much time on the road in 2017 and 2018, 2019, talking to voters. And I heard from so many voters that uh, what they wanted was calm and peace and not to be worried about what was happening in Washington and to sort of have the fire get put out. And Bernie Sanders um, had a message that everything was broken and we needed to burn it down. And voters didn't buy it. They didn't want to burn everything down. They wanted the guy who said, we can go back to being calm and quiet. And I think we're really continuing to see that play out in these primaries. Voters still don't want to burn things down. Um, they want uh, elected officials who who tell them we can work together, we can get things done, we can make things happen, at least in the Democratic Party and among independents. I, I won't know that we can say the same with the Republican Party yet or ever, but um, and I, that's really what continued to happen, I think, in this primary. Um, neither one of these candidates were unknown commodities in that district. Nina Turner was very well known long before um, her roles uh, with Bernie Sanders and long before um, her alignment with that wing of the party sort of in, in an official way. And I think that it's about tone, it's about approach, and and that's what we saw voters responding to, um, which is really intertwined with ideology, but but not exactly ideology. Yeah, it wasn't so. The difference wasn't so much on policy at all, right? It was really on um, who could work, whom people thought could work uh, better with others in the Congress and get things done. I think that's what it, what it uh, came down to. Um, and finally, we are not yet, we thought we might would be at this time, we are not yet 
uh, out of the line of fire when it comes to COVID-19. A lot of the action now is at state levels. Do they go back to requiring masks, go back to requiring uh, social distancing, go back to a lockdown? Uh, Governors are on the front lines. Here is one governor, Larry Hogan, Republican governor of Maryland, who had something strong to say this week about people who have not yet been vaccinated. Those of you who uh, refuse to get vaccinated at this point are willfully and unnecessarily putting yourself and others at risk of hospitalization and death. You are the ones uh, threatening the freedoms of all the rest of us, the freedom not to wear masks, to keep our businesses open, and to get our kids back in school. John Bennett. We heard the same thing from Republican Governor Kay Ivey from Alabama last week. Is the tide turning against the unvaccinated, basically saying, come on, you're putting all the rest of us at risk. Get with it. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, Larry Hogan, <laughs> is a re- he's a Republican governor, but in a, in a you know, mostly blue state. Um, I, I don't I, I'm from the South. I grew up in the Charlotte area. Um, but, you know, once you get, you know, it's kind of like Washington, once you get 15 or 20 minutes outside, not even that much down there, outside of Charlotte, it's very rural, it's very red. Um, I, I don't think in my hometown in North Carolina, near the, near the South Carolina border and point South or North and West and East, I don't, I don't, I don't sense from talking to my family and friends that it, that's happening down there, that there's mm-hmm. this tide against unvaccinated folks. Um, it's, it's just baffling to me that the folks who don't want to wear a mask and don't want to have any restrictions will not take a vaccine that is clearly safe. I understand it hasn't been fully, um, fully okayed uh, by the by the government. I, I get that. Uh, that seems to me more like an excuse now. They just, you know, the, the unvaccinated keep coming up with excuse after excuse on why they refuse to do it. Um, you know, I, I I doubt though that when their 16 year old son or daughter um, gets a note from their school that they need a tetanus booster to play football or um, or soccer in the fall or, or anything like that as they go back to school, that they're not going to rush their their child uh, to their family doctor and, and get that shot. So uh, it's baffling. It's troubling. Um, you know, I'm prepared for a second lockdown. I don't think that's going to happen, but I can't rule it out. Yeah. Uh, and not all the governors, as we know, are uh, getting in line, obviously, particularly when it comes to uh, Texas and when it comes to Florida. Uh, President Biden called those two governors out, particularly this week. Here he is. Florida and Texas account for one third of all new COVID-19 cases in the entire country. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way. Yeah. So, Ginger, this is the pressure now, right, Uh, on the governors and the mayors, uh, rather than a federal mandate, which the president has has really, really um, hesitated to do. I think he's hesitated for good reason. I mean, like like John, I'm from the Deep South um, and see people I went to school with, my family. um, I think a federal mandate would probably make many of them more resistant to getting the vaccine, not less. Um, They would 
they would feel like they're, they, you know, they already feel like the government is doing something. Um, and, and so it, it's about cooperation. And, you know, you look at governors like Hogan, like um, Ivy, who are trying to really appeal to their to their states without much success. Um, and I have to say, I, I, I think, again, John's right, you know, parents who wouldn't question getting a tetanus booster for their kid to play football, um, it's really going to have to happen at the lowest of levels. It's about convincing your family, your neighbors. Um, I think if high school football coaches uh, were getting on board with convincing their teams uh, to get vaccinated, to keep the virus out of their their locker rooms. Um, I had an uncle who was very resistant, um, who I have spent probably four months uh, slowly trying to convince. scheduling appointments for him that he didn't take. Um, and last week he texted me to say that the Delta surge in, he lives in Houston was scaring him and he went and got a Pfizer vaccine. Mm -hmm. So it's possible we can do it. It is just about doing it on the level of which we find people who we trust and even Republican governors in red States that are, are the government and, and, and they're not going to be trusted by a lot of people. Um, and, and for that reason, you know, it's an effort, but I, I, I'm not sure how much that level of, of, of pressure is going to be successful. Well, the most convincing voices, Addie, that I've heard this week are those people who had resisted, who said it was not a problem, not serious, scoffed at the whole thing, and then ended up getting the COVID and uh, gave interviews from their hospital bed saying, please go get vaccinated. That's pretty powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's really powerful stuff. It's really, really sad, actually. There's a, there was a really great article um, last week, and I believe it was from a, a paper in Alabama, and I'm so sorry, I, I should have looked it up earlier, but uh, there was a heartbreaking line from a doctor in, in the piece who was saying that he is having um, these patients come in and, and that they are being put on ventilators and that they are often saying to him, please give me the vaccine. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's having to say it's too late. And, um, you know, I I think that that there is this sense for a lot of people, especially people who are still unvaccinated, that COVID is not that big of a deal. Still, we are a year into this. There have been hundreds of thousands of deaths. And um, and people still think of it as, as a cold, a flu. It's not, especially the Delta variant. It is very serious. It is very contagious. People, unvaccinated people are getting very sick and they are dying. Um, and I think you're right, Bill. I think, unfortunately, that is one of the biggest things that can convince people. Yeah, I saw that story, too. That was a real heartbreaker. Well, a lot of news this week, and we have uh, more or less covered the waterfront here with today's panelists. We thank you, uh, all of, all three of you, Ginger Gibson from NBC News Digital, Addie Baird, BuzzFeed News, and John Bennett. CQ Roll Call, as busy as we are, there's always one story or more during the week that we sort of uh, stops us in our tracks and says, oh, my God, look at that. That's great. That's horrible whatever. We call it favorite news story of the week. Oh, where do we start? Ginger, kick us off, please. 
Yeah. So um, the most interesting thing I think I read this week was David Brooks' piece in The Atlantic on the creative class and how um, America has sort of become divided. I don't know that I agreed with every depiction of the creative class, and especially as someone who grew up not part of the creative class and a part of America in the deep South that, that would not be considered uh, to be fostering <laughs> this creative class. Uh, he does an interesting job of breaking down statistics and numbers and, and looking at how some of this is concentrated in, in certain parts of America. And it really was an interesting read to me to look at um, how how we view ourselves uh, as people in this group and how um, it hmm. we sort of function in America. And so it's a really great read if you're if you're thinking about how we are dividing as a country, especially in these these moments of hyperpartisanship um, and what it means for us going forward. So it's it's called How the Bobos Broke America, and <laughs> I would recommend reading it. Uh, uh, David Brooks, uh, also I might uh, piggyback there that uh, in Friday mornings, this morning's the New York Times, David Brooks has a, a very interesting column about how Biden's approach to bipartisanship uh, and getting back to actually governing may actually be working. Again, not sure I agree with all of it, but uh, it's a very, very, very strong piece, I believe. Uh, Addie Baird, what caught your attention? So I always love to bring stories about space when I come on the podcast oh, yes. because <laughs> it makes me feel um, like out of this world. <laughs> yes. And it makes me feel like all of our earthly problems are somewhat smaller. <laughs> um, so one of my favorite stories this week um, was a vice story. The headline was scientists created a quantum crystal that will search for dark matter. Mm. Um and I think this is very interesting. It is also um, about a paper that my boyfriend's brother was a co-author of, mm -hmm. um, which I think is neat. And I will be honest, I don't totally understand what the <laughs> hell it means. Um, however, essentially, they built this like crystal that can help them potentially detect a hypothetical particle called the axions that might exist. And if we can detect it, it will help us actually be able to understand dark matter, um, which um, of course is the enormous <laughs> unseeable matter that we know absolutely nothing about that makes up the majority of our universe. Um, so uh, I, I, I think it's like very interesting to think about. And, and that was my, that was my favorite thing of the week. There are a lot of unknowns there, Eddie. And when you figure, <laughs> if you figure any of them out, uh, come back and tell us all about it. All right. I'll get started, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> John Bennett, your favorite story of the week. Sure. Uh, as you know, Bill, I usually turn to the world of sports yes. uh, during this time, but I am going to break my own streak today uh, and take us to Clark County, Wisconsin, because uh, the big lie is still out there, still being pushed by President Trump, Republican lawmakers, and and others, including uh, the My Pillow guy. AKA, oh, God. yes. AKA Mark uh, Lindell. And um, the, the county clerk in Clark County, Wisconsin, uh, tells CNN that she has been stopped on the streets uh, almost daily by acquaintances, people she's known for a long time, telling her that uh, Chinese hackers 
swapped uh, or switched 24,000 votes in the county uh, from Trump to Biden. And uh, this clerk, uh, Christina Jensen, tells CNN that, well, there's only a couple problems with this theory that Mr. Lindell is pushing on Fox News and Newsmax and uh, other conservative outlets. 24,000 votes were swapped. Well, there's a problem there. The county only has 17,000 registered voters. And number, and number two, she says, the uh, local voting system is not and has never been connected to the Internet, meaning that Chinese, Russian, or any other hackers would have a pretty hard time getting inside the system. Uh, but it just goes, and she says, uh, she pushes back nicely and politely on these folks. But they just say, uh, quote, well, Mike Lindell says this, end quote. And um, as I mentioned earlier, this just shows the power of conservative media. Um, you know, folks take this as gospel. I've been in houses in the South where Fox News or Newsmax, it's on all day, all night, and they don't question what they hear. And, you know, this is this remains a um, a big issue that. Uh, we're all going to be wrestling with for a long time. Well, I must say, John, you may not believe this, but you know damn well that Rudy Giuliani believes it. Uh, <laughs> he does. And, and so does Donald Trump. <laughs> and probably repeating it. Uh, okay, well, I'm, I, I thank each of you for not uh, jumping on my favorite story of the week, which is the missing bottle of whiskey. Uh, no doubt you've heard about this, but back in June uh, 2019, you know, there, there is a law, uh, totally ignored by the uh, Trump administration, by the way, for four years, that um, members of the government, starting with the president, cannot receive gifts from foreign powers. Uh, and in fact, the way that is, um, the rules have been set down, if uh, somebody gets a gift worth less than $390, they can kind of do whatever they want with it. But anything more valuable than that has to be turned over to the government. It usually goes to the government archives or the Smithsonian or whatever. Well, back in June 2019, at the G20 meeting in Osaka, Japan, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was given a bottle of whiskey by the government of Japan, a bottle of whiskey that has been valued at $5,800. Don't know whether it's scotch, bourbon, or rye, but that's good whiskey. Uh, the problem is the State Department Inspector General has said they have no trace of what happened to that bottle of whiskey. It was not reported. Uh, it was reported, but they can't find it, and they don't know whatever happened to it. It is the Mike Pompeo insists he doesn't remember anything about it. Uh, and now there is an investigation underway in the State Department to locate or to find out whatever happened to this $5,800 bottle of whiskey. I will give you my theory. Uh, the New York Times reports that immediately after that meeting, the Secretary of State was flying off to Saudi Arabia. I think that was a very happy flight on the way to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and I bet they enjoyed every last drop of that $5,800 bottle of whiskey. That's just my theory. No evidence to support it. So... There you go. When we find out uh, like that uh, 
Addy's story about the dark, dark matter. We find out about the missing bottle of whiskey. We'll let you know what happened to it. Uh, and that's today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor, NBC News Digital. Thank you, Addy Baird, Politics Reporter, BuzzFeed News. Thank you, John Bennett, Contributing Editor for CQ Roll Call. And thank you all for listening. We invite you back on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod next Tuesday when we'll be talking to Carol Lenning and Phil Rucker from the Washington Post about their blockbuster new book, I Alone Can Fix It, uh, a chilling, chilling account of the last year of the Trump presidency. I Alone Can Fix It. That's next on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Take care of yourselves. Be good, be strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.